Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Do you want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get more great investing content. And if you're listening on YouTube, hit that like button on this video. Any other platform, your five-star rating and review are a great way to support the show. Thank you for your support. Now let's dive into today's episode. The focus for today is what I am calling the deflation myth. So we're going to do a little myth busting today where I break down the mainstream view of deflation and explain to you how it's wrong, or at least how I believe it's wrong, and then you can make up your decision from there. So the mainstream belief is that deflation is bad. So first we need to talk about what deflation is, why some consider it bad, and why you should have a more nuanced view of this economic phenomenon. So when I talk about deflation, many people are going to be most aware of the word inflation. So we'll first begin by inverting the conversation, discuss what inflation is. So inflation has various definitions, but the definitions I like to choose revolve around the change in prices for um, goods and services. So this idea is, is that over time, the price of goods and services either increases or decreases from year to year. If the general price of goods and services increase on a, from year to year by let's say 5%. So if, if the cost of gas goes up 5% in 2020 versus 2019, then you could say that gas prices inflated by 5%. Likewise, if the cost of food went up 3% in 2020 versus 2019, then you could say that, the, that food prices inflated by 3%. Deflation is the opposite. Deflation is the decline in prices of a general prices of goods over time. So if instead the price of computers declined by 10% from year to year, you could say that there was 10% price deflation in the computer industry. Likewise, you could say that deflation could be something around, let's say, televisions. And so the price of televisions deflated by 4% from 20, 2019 to 2020. So this general idea is that inflation is the gradual increase in prices over time, and deflation is the gradual decrease in prices over time. 
Now, there's a lot of theories about what causes inflation versus deflation, and I'm not going to go into all of those detailed advanced topics today. I want to begin by focusing on the basics because I think at the very root level, there's a lot that we get wrong about the discussion of deflation and inflation. And if you don't understand the basics, it's not worth having a discussion of the more complicated topics because a lot of people will take false assumptions at the basic point and then extrapolate it into how they believe they should structure their investments and personal finances. But you really need to get this right. So inflation is the increase in prices over time and deflation is the decrease in prices over time. Now, there's some alternative definitions. Um, one of the ones I like that's an alternative is that um, inflation is the increase in the amount of currency or um, money that is chasing fewer goods. So basically, if you print money at the government level and there's more money but the same amount of goods, it's going to lead to price inflation. And likewise, deflation can be caused by the um, printing of money either not being as fast as the expansion in goods and services or um, the being on some sort of hard currency like gold or silver that doesn't change um, to the point where it would increase with goods and services. And so you might have deflation um, in those prices. <laughs> so. These are all driven in general by supply and demand um, and competition in the market and that sort of thing, which is why you will see discussion of inflation and deflation try and look at broad consumer indices. In the United States, we have um, an indice called the CPI or Consumer Price Index, and there's various versions of the CPI, but this is a commonly accepted way of determining how prices are changing over time. And what it does is it takes a basket of goods that a typical family is expected to purchase. And it tries to assess how much of your budget are you spending on each set of goods. So it's going to assign some portion of a, a budget to buying food, some portion of a budget to buying gasoline, some portion of a budget to buying clothes, some portion of the budget to provide paying for utilities like water, electricity, um, internet, cell phone bills, that sort of thing. In addition, there's a lot of detailed work that goes into these sorts of um, calculations. And what the government will do is they will say, well, not only are you buying food and gasoline every month, you're also buying a refrigerator every month. You're also buying a house every month. You're also buying a car every month. You're buying transportation. You're buying um, dishwashing. You're, bu you're buying clothes washing every month. And now they're not saying you're buying a brand new house every month. They're saying you're buying one month's worse worth of living in a house. So if you're a renter, that would be the price of your rent. But if you're a owner of your house, they will determine what the monthly cost of owning your house is based upon combining um, an estimate of what your mortgage would be and an estimate of maintenance costs. And so they're going to give you a monthly equivalent rent for houses that you own. 
likewise, they'll say, okay, refrigerators last 10 years, and then they'll divide the cost of a refrigerator by 10 years, put it on a monthly basis, and track the cost of refrigerators over time. So it's saying that it's not that you're buying a refrigerator only once every 10 years. Instead, you're buying one-tenth of a refrigerator every year, and it's apportioned out month by month. The idea here is that you're also going to include stuff like healthcare costs, which won't typically occur every month, but it does change over time. You're also going to include costs like college education and savings for those things. So even though they only occur on a very short time period, it might be four years out of your child's life, they're going to incorporate those costs into the CPI. Um, so what this is doing is when you look at a CPI number and it says inflation for the year is 2%, that doesn't mean that every individual good has gone up in 2%. What it means is the average, the weighted average of all the goods in the basket went up by 2% per year. And this could mean that some goods like healthcare went up by 10% per year and some goods like um cell phones went up by 3% a year, and some goods like televisions declined by 7% in the year. But when you add them all up together, it equals 2%. Now, you can obviously see how there can be problems with this. It can be hard to estimate this. Some families spend more money on healthcare than others. Some families spend more on food than others. Some spend on more on um, transportation, vice versa, and it continues through the three, through the set. But it's an estimate. There's a lot of problems with how it can be estimate, estimated and the, and the details of that calculation, but it's not worth going into. The main piece is we have a way of measuring whether the prices of goods are increasing over time or decreasing. So now let's get to the myth. I know that was a long introduction, but the deflation myth is basically this. Deflation is considered bad, and economists on an almost universal basis, or at least the mainstream view from economists, is that deflation is bad because consumers will hold off making purchases with the expectation that prices will decline further in the future. So the general thought is if, if prices are going down by 2% every year, then you will hold off buying a house this year because you know next year the price of the house is going to go down. You will hold off buying food this year because the cost of food is going to go down in the future. You will hold off buying a refrigerator this year because the cost of a refrigerator is going to go down in the future. And you're going to hold off buying health care and an education this year because the cost is going to go down next year by 2%. Now, when I explain it that way, it should be fairly obvious why this is absolutely ridiculous. This just doesn't happen. There may be some goods and some purchases that consumers would be willing to delay if they knew that prices would be lower in the future. But there's a big problem here. Some goods you have to purchase every month. You can't delay food purchases from one year to the next because you have to eat every day or at least every week in order to survive. You can't simply not eat in 2020 because you're and make up for that food in 2021. You would die. The same is true for many other goods. Transportation. 
you need transportation to get to and from your job. Now, COVID's complicated that a little because not everyone's tr- you know making the same um, movement to and from work. But in, for the most part, across the economy, substantial amount of people are still transporting to and from work. You have essential workers and all sort of, sort of thing. Likewise, you need some place to live every month of every year. You can't delay the purchase of living locations. You're either going to be paying rent or you're going to be paying for a mortgage of a house. Maybe you delay purchasing a house, but that doesn't mean that instead you'll be renting a house instead or renting an apartment. So you can't delay that purchase. Likewise, maybe you delay purchasing your own um, clothes washer and dryer, but you're still going to be using a clothes washer and dryer during that time to clean your clothes. Likewise, you need um, utilities. You can't delay heating and air conditioning for your living location. You need those things to live and support your family. So the idea that consumers are going to delay en masse purchases because deflation is occurring and prices are declining 1, 2, 3% per year is absolutely ridiculous. This all depends upon this idea that economists put forth when they sit around in their fancy rooms, in their colleges, thinking about problems, that this rational consumer exists. That a rational consumer is going to look at the market and say, when prices are going down, I'm going to hold off my purchases and make them in the future. And when prices are going up, I'm going to quickly purchase today to avoid prices, higher prices in the future. But this is why you have a whole field called behavioral economics. There's a whole field talking about how customer behavior does not match this rational consumer, this person that makes the most rational decision in all aspects. I know I'm not a rational consumer. It doesn't matter how smart I am. It doesn't matter how um, disciplined I am. I'm going to make decisions that are not always perfectly rational. You could call this is going to be true whether you're talking about buying and selling stocks, but it can also be true about buying junk food when you're in a convenience store or walking through and buying desserts and snacks that you don't need that's going to make you less healthy and might cause you to spend more money than you otherwise would. I don't know about you, but I'm seldom looking at the price when I pick up a piece of junk food and put it into my cart at the grocery store. Price is not the reason I'm making that decision. I'm making it for other decisions or other reasons. And I think that holds true across the board. People aren't rational. People are emotional. And when we... And so this idea is that not only are consumers going to hold off purchases because there's an expectation that prices will decline in the future, but they make the second leap that the simple act of delaying these purchases is going to cause a downward spiral in the economy, leading us into a Great Depression. The idea being this, prices decline by 3%, which causes consumers to stop buying cars and houses in the hope that next year they can get a 3% better deal on their purchase. And by doing so, 
companies are not able to sell as many goods, which means that the next year, instead of falling 3% or staying the same, prices fall 5 or 10%. And consumers see that 10% drop and they wait an additional year to buy a house. And that additional year buy a house th- drives more companies into bankruptcy. And so now prices drop 30%. And those 30% drop says, hey, I'm going to keep holding off making purchases. I'm going to stop buying food. I'm going to stop buying utilities. I'm going to stop buying health care. I'm going to stop doing an education. And I'm going to delay and delay and delay. And I'm going to drive the economy down 50%. And that this whole time, people are going to keep saying prices are dropping, prices are dropping. I don't need to spend my money. My money is becoming more valuable every year, and I'm not going to spend it. I think it is self-evident that people don't behave this way, which also means it's self-evident, if you look at this from a first principles point of view, that Deflation does not lead to this imaginary death spiral that's going to lead us into a massive depression. It's really hard for people to delay gratification. It's really hard for people to delay gratification. This is a skill that is immensely beneficial for furthering your financial well-being but it's simply obvious based on the data that over half of the American population can't afford a $400 emergency expense that a vast majority of the country is unable to delay gratification. And the idea of a 2% discount one year from now is not going to change that. So if deflation is false, why do we, or if, if it's false that deflation is bad, because it's not going to lead to a Great Depression due to a death spiral. Why do we keep hearing that deflation is bad? Well, there's two explanations. One, it's easy as an academic sitting in ivory tower not to consider the real-world impacts and to make false assumptions. Or two, they recognize that these assumptions are wrong, but there's a continued narrative that deflation is bad because... Certain groups benefit from this. Now, I'm going to let, leave it up to you to decide which of these two areas is most true. But I'm going to tell you now who deflation is bad for and who deflation is good for. And then you can decide where you fit in that spectrum. So in general, deflation is bad for debtors, which means those who are in debt. And this includes governments because they're almost all debtors. The U.S. federal government has over $20 trillion of debt. The state governments are all in debt. Most municipal governments are all in debt. There's a massive government debt throughout the entire United States government, and every nation on earth has massive debts. I believe every nation on earth, but feel free to double-check that. In addition, you have leveraged companies suffer when deflation occurs because now they And companies with pricing power suffer when deflation occurs. So companies with debt or governments with debt suffer due to deflation because now they have to pay with more valuable dollars in the future to pay down their debt. You see, deflation, prices decreasing, can also be said that the value of your money is increasing. 
So if the value of your money is increasing, that means if you're you're having to pay back your debt with more valuable money than when you took the mo- the debt out. So this is going to be bad for governments because it's going to be harder for them to pay back their debt. And it's going to be bad for leveraged companies because it's going to be harder to pay back their debt. So it would make a lot of sense then for government to build this narrative that deflation is bad because it would make it harder for them to pay back their debts. Companies with pricing power suffer during a deflationary era because one of the things that allows regular increases in prices is when a company is not the only one increasing prices. If every company is raising their prices by 2 or 3% per year, it's easier for a company with pricing power to raise their prices by 5% a year and to thus have a necessary advantage over their competitors. Because they can say, hey, everyone's raising prices, and they don't necessarily have to talk about that they're able to raise prices faster than their competitors. Now let's look at the other situation. For whom is deflation good? Deflation is good for creditors, those who lend money to others. Because now you're lending out money And you're going to be paid back in more valuable dollars than you paid in. So you're lending cheap dollars and you're getting paid back expensive dollars because the value of your money has gone up during the period of the loan. Likewise, deflation is good for those without debt. Because if you don't have debt and you have, let's say, cash, then people or companies with net cash on their balance sheet, that could be emergency funds, that could be investing accounts with cash, that could be companies with bank accounts with cash. Um, Companies with cash and no debt will benefit from deflation because it means their money is more valuable from year to year. It's able to buy more goods and services in the future than it would have been if there was instead inflation. And likewise, companies without pricing power can benefit from deflation. Because if you don't have the ability to raise your prices well, then deflation can actually help you. Because what it will do is it will be a built-in raising of your prices simply by your ability to maintain prices. If overall price levels within the economy are decreasing every year, All you have to do is convince your customers to pay the same price as they did from one year to the next, and it will be a functional real price increase, even though you may not have been able to convince them to raise prices on your products if inflation was occurring. So this can be a a hidden advantage for companies without pricing power if deflation is occurring. So I like to look at this and it's really interesting because there's a big trade-off here. As an investor, as a personal investor who's being prudent, as someone who's trying to make good financial decisions, someone that's building an emergency fund, someone that's investing in stocks, I look at it and say, I like deflation more than other people because I don't have the debt and I have positive cash flow that I can invest into people and companies. Likewise, The alternative is, is I see that other people like governments and leveraged companies are going to be against deflation because they have different incentives than me. So when I look at it and I say, hey, deflation is good, inflation is bad, deflation is good, 
But I can understand why government organizations and government-based economic economists, those working for institutions run by the government, will be incentivized to say that deflation is bad. But it's important to understand this nuance so you can really break down what this myth is. Because I do believe it's a myth. And part of the myth is this idea that you see everywhere. For instance, the Federal Reserve has a stated goal of maintaining stable pricing from Congress. One of their goals is to maintain stable pricing. What does stable pricing mean to you? Stable pricing means to me that if the cost of beef is $5 a pound in 2019, then prices are stable if the cost of beef is $5 a pound in 2020 and $5 a pound in 2021. The Federal Reserve of the United States has a different opinion. They don't think that stable pricing is 0% inflation, which is what I think it is. They think stable pricing is 2% inflation. So their goal for stable pricing is for prices to rise over time. But my definition of stable pricing is that prices stay the same over time. Now again, 2% inflation helps the government to pay back their debts with cheaper money than they had to start with when they borrowed the money. But it makes goods more expensive for you as a consumer. And so this is just another myth here where the Federal Reserve is making a goal of saying, oh, we're maintaining stable pricing even though their stated goal is that the prices go up each and every year. So when the Federal Reserve is talking about failure to achieve their inflation goals, that should be a big red flag for you. You should see that and say, hey, what's going on? How does it affect my personal financial situation and how does it infect my, impact my investments? Because you may not have been thinking it through what the inflation rate means. And inflation is really important for understanding the required rates of return on your investment portfolio. When you're setting a discount rate as an investor, that discount rate has two components. One is the inflation component and two is the real return. So the real return is what you care about. That is the real increase in your purchasing power for each year of your investment. So basically what you're trying to do, and Buffett's talked about this a lot, is that if your money is able to buy one hamburger today, you'd like it to be able to buy two hamburgers 10 years from now. You don't want to be able to buy less hamburgers. You want to be able to buy more hamburgers. Now, those hamburgers are going to have a change in the price each and every year. Sometimes the hamburgers are going to go up in price. Sometimes the hamburgers might go down in price. Historically, we generally have inflation almost all the time. That means that hamburger prices are increasing over time, which means you need your money to grow simply to keep up with the price of the hamburgers. But you want it to grow even faster than that because it would be a failure for you that if, let's say, hamburgers cost a dollar per burger today, but 10 years from now they cost $2 a burger. Well, if you grow your money from a dollar to $2 in 10 years, you can still only purchase one hamburger because you only kept up with inflation. 
But if instead you grew your dollar from a dollar to four dollars, now you can produce purchase two hamburgers at a price of $2 a piece, when at the beginning you could buy one hamburger at the price of a dollar a piece. So when you're thinking about your discount rate and the return you demand from your investments, you need to think about the impacts on inflation of your investment portfolio. Now, I'm not asking you to become a major macro investor where you're really trying to understand what our inflation rate's going to be, trying to predict the inflation for the next 12 months or three years or five years. It's not what I want you to do. What I want you to do, though, is have an understanding of what the historic rate of inflation has been so you can make intelligent, informed decisions about the potential future of inflation. The historic inflation rate in the United States has ranged from 3 to 4% over the last 100 years. The current inflation rate is below that in the 1 to 2% range from year to year. But the question is, if the current inflation rate is below the historic average, should you plan on the, the future inflation rate being what it currently is? Or... Should you plan on it being the historical average or should you plan on being above the historical average? Well, I think you shouldn't plan on it staying the same because things change over time. And you should probably plan for it to either match or exceed the historic average because one, that's more conservative. And two, if we stay below the average for a long period of time, it's likely that we'll have to spend some time above the historic average in order to maintain that same average. Now, that average can change over time and it could continue decreasing. I don't know. I can't predict the future. But you need to spend a little time thinking about it because it's the difference between demanding a 10% rate of return on your portfolio, a 6% rate of return on your portfolio, or a 15% rate of return on your portfolio. That inflation percentage is a key component to your discount rate. And the discount rate is a primary driver of the valuation process, which I've talked about before. So in summary, deflation is considered bad by economists because they expect that consumers will hold off making purchases with the expectation that prices will decline further in the future. I think this is complete baloney because I don't think consumers either can or do delay their purchases for any substantial period of time. Delayed gratification is a valuable skill, but it does not appear to be a common skill. And the idea that a 2% change in the price of your food, your mortgage, your rent, your utility cost, your car cost is going to cause you to make a substantial change in your purchasing decision does not seem likely to me. So, I think the, that the idea that deflation is bad is primarily a myth, and it's either perpetuated due to a lack of understanding in consumer behavior, or in order to support the idea that inflation is good so that governments can pay back their debts at lower prices. This has a massive effect not just on governments, but whether companies have leverage or not leverage, whether companies have pricing power or not. You should spend a little bit of time thinking about the inflation rate. Not a lot, but it's important because it may affect your decision to invest in different companies. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I hope this has been helpful to you. The Deflation Myth is episode 103, and you can listen to or you can find the show notes at diyinvesting.org slash episode 103. Please remember this is a listener-supported podcast. If you've gained value from today's content, please consider supporting the show financially as a patron. You can become a patron at diyinvesting.org slash p-a-t-r-o-n. If you enjoy listening to this show, please leave me a rating or review in your podcast player. A five-star rating with a quick one-sentence review really helps me to grow the show audience. Don't forget to subscribe and thank you for listening. Until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast. Switching to Shopify helps you sell smarter at every stage of your business. Take full control of your brand with your own custom online store. Wow, looks amazing. Find more customers with our easy-to-use marketing tools. Piece of cake. And let the best converting checkout on the planet do its thing. Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Switch to Shopify today for a $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.